today on 2C Fans. It's different taxonomic groups and, and uh, enable us to map a bloom very well. Now that's the kind of technology I'd like to see. Joe is not falling asleep now. No, no, no. I'm <laughs> wide awake. And I get to fly drones, so that's you a bonus. Sweet. Is it hard to fly a drone? I just um, gotta ask, because I think I'd crash it. Hello, and welcome to 2C Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory. I'm Haley Rutger. And I'm Joe Nicholson. And I'm promising not to spill any more coffee on Joe today, because I already did it once. Please, please don't. And <laughs> coffee hot. Now that that's out of our system, we are here with the uh, one of our really awesome scientists, Dr. Vince Loveco. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, and so what do you do here at Moat? Uh, well, I'm a staff scientist and, the, and a manager of the phytoplankton ecology research uh, program. Ooh, that sounds important. A lot of big words. A lot of big words. But before you had all those words associated <laughs> with you, um, where are you from, Vince? Uh, well, from, hmm. Um, <clears throat> I was actually born in, uh, in Germany, oddly enough. We were talking about Germany earlier. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force, but I grew up uh, primarily in uh, Virginia, in uh, southeastern Virginia, and um, ended up going to, to school there as well at uh, the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, part of the College of William & Mary. And that's where I discovered phytoplankton, or at least uh, phytoplankton research, and uh, have stayed uh, with that ever since. Wow, a... You discovered phytoplankton? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I stumbled personally, across. Personally, uh, he discovered it. I discovered All a, of them. I stumbled across uh, research in phytoplankton yeah. and um, carried that on through a postdoc appointment in, uh, at University of uh, South Mississippi, and um, then on to here at Moat, studying red tide. Nice. Do you know what phytoplankton are, Joe? Yeah, they're tiny little organisms that live in the salt water of our oceans and seas. What's the phyto on phytoplankton? Uh, that's the uh, the part where they want to fight nope. everybody. Nope. <laughs> they're angry little cells. That... Vince? <laughs> maybe I should jump in here. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> So uh, you're partially right. Uh, phytoplankton, they're single-celled organisms. They're in all waters, not just uh, marine waters. They're in fresh water as well. Uh, the phyto is from uh, uh, photosynthesis, essentially. They, are, they use the sun to make energy, much like plants we find on land, trees and grasses and all of that. And in fact, they, they can be considered kind of the, the, the grasses of the sea. Um, and they are the, the biggest component of um, the marine photosynthesizing organisms. So before we get to any of the, the more harmful ones, um, people often like to say in our marine science world that a lot of the air you breathe is due to phytoplankton. Is that right? That is right. So basically for every three breaths of air that you breathe, the two of them are due to phytoplankton. What? Roughly. Really? Actually, maybe slightly more. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah, it's about a, well, the marine plants as a whole contribute about 70 to 80% of the oxygen to the earth. And the phytoplankton are the largest component of the marine photosynthesizing organisms. I can't just say marine plants because that's scientifically not accurate. <laughs> See, and that's like when we were growing up, you know, I was taught, oh, it's the trees that, you know, if you cut down a tree, we're not going to be able to breathe and, you know, save the rainforest because, you know. Yeah, well, they're about a third, the yeah. other third. Wow. Okay. Well. Learn something new today, Hales. And we can't call them a plant because what they have is they're just a single cell. Well, plant implies certain yeah. things. And yeah. typically when we use the term plant, we're talking about a vascular plant that has roots and all of that. Uh, and uh, phytoplankton are, you know, they're plant-like organisms. And that's the plankton part. The plankton part, exactly. Many of them are able to swim freely in the, in the oceans. 
Mm-hmm. They kind of drift around, like. Well, they drift around, and they have some of them. The ones I study most, the dinoflagellates, they have flagella, and they're actually able to swim, and they can move through the water column. So that's that little whippy, whippy tail on the on the side. It's not a tail, but yeah. yes, it's a flagellum. <laughs> the the tail-like appendage. Tail. Yes. The tail, plant-like organism with tail-like appendage. <laughs> sounds like a sea monkey. <laughs> nope, no, it doesn't. That's a brine shrimp tail. Okay. So like. Uh, Which eat phytoplankton? Ah, see. They do. Well, sure. Huh. There you go. Base of the food web. Um, so what? I, how, how can you possibly explain to laymen like us what kind of phytoplankton live like right outside this lab in the Gulf of Mexico? There's probably a lot. <laughs> there, there are a lot. And, you know, a lot of it's easy to think of phytoplankton or these algae as all being more or less the same thing. But there are a lot of different groups of these algae. And they're as different from each other as we are from a plant or from a fungus. They're, they're very different groups of organisms. And that's very important to understand, especially when we start talking about harmful algae, because there are different um, species and different taxonomic groups of harmful algae in different parts of the world. So, red so we tide. respond to them yeah. differently. So like a red tide, like a harmful algal bloom in some other part of the world is not our red tide. Right. Now, generally speaking, when, we're t- when we use the term red tide, which is used for algal blooms around the world... And that are not caused by the same organism, they generally are the, the group of phytoplankton that we call dinoflagellates, mm. but different species of dinoflagellate. The tail-like appendage. With tail-like <laughs> appendages. I would like to know what kinds of helpful or harmful things these phytoplankton do. How about a bit of both? That would be great. Well, we talked about the oxygen, of course, so that's yes. that's pretty important. That's an important you, one. You get rid of I, phytoplankton and we'll have a hard time I'd breathing. like to breathe. Um, another is that there, uh, uh, Haley had re- uh, um, mentioned this, the, the base of the food chain. So the phytoplankton are extremely important as the base of the food chain in the oceans. If we didn't have phytoplankton, we wouldn't have fish. Um, it, you know, there's a few, few steps of progression through that. You know, grazers, I mentioned the brine shrimp, things like that eat the phytoplankton, small fish eat the zooplankton, and larger the whole fish food web eat, thing. Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. without phytoplankton, we don't have the rest of it. So there's that function, which is, you know, a very basic ecological function. But there's others as well. There's a lot of uh, um, uh, compounds made by algae that can be useful. Uh, you've probably heard of biofuels. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, a yeah. lot of phytoplankton produce uh, high-quality oils that can be extracted and actually used as, as fuel. And other, uh, other compounds, such as other lipids and fatty acids, can be used uh, for a variety of things. And some of them have been used to, um, uh, or are being studied, researched to treat things like neurodegenerative diseases, like Parkinson's and ALS. Um, uh, other, other diseases, uh, they're used, uh, even some of the toxins produced by some of the harmful ones are used in cancer research. Or th- This is kind of a new field being is explored, but there's a lot of possibilities there. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard a lot of talk about the first one you mentioned with the biofuels. Um, and I, I actually, I think I saw something on YouTube not too long ago about somebody actually producing vast amounts of... Oil. Oh yeah, there's, there's a, that's, that's pretty advanced. That's moved along quite well. And then the medicine part, um, didn't know well, all that was going on with the uh, Alzheimer's and, and the rest, but that's, uh, that's really interesting. 
here's a dumb question, but do they ever get any kind of like, is there any current food product that you know of that uh, has an algae component? Phytoplankton. Well, phytoplankton component. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, it's, it's uses, there's a lot of uh, uh, supplements and vitamins and, you know, that are claimed to have a lot of health benefits. The, the jury's out on a lot of that. Is spirulina one of those? It is one of those. Ah, that's in my calcium supplement. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that. <laughs> and of course, there are, you know, some potential uh, um, concerns there as well. It all depends on how it's grown and harvested. I see. You probably wouldn't want to harvest it naturally because there could be other phytoplankton in there as well. Look at this great bloom of spirulina. <laughs> I'm going to have some. <laughs> oh, my. Nope. <laughs> With a little bit of milk. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked um, We talked about some of the, one of the most prominent um, harmful algae blooms around this, this part of the world in the Gulf of Mexico. We talked with Dr. Tracy Finera, one of your colleagues. Um, how does your research program work on this Florida red tide? Um, well, we have, uh, I think, like half a dozen research programs here at Moat that work on red tide um, as part of a, a, a a cooperative agreement we have with the state where we basically f fulfill a lot of their monitoring and research uh, needs. And um, so we, it's, it's pretty ver vast and, and varied. Uh, one of the main components of that is monitoring. So we go out and we take boats and we use other instruments and we collect a lot of data. And, you know, monitoring sounds boring to a lot of people, but it's extremely important. You know, you have to you have to collect this data and have a long-term set of data to be able to look at trends and influences and try to figure out what what causes blooms to happen or what makes them, you know, worse one year than another or what makes them, you know, relatively small one year and the next year we have a giant one along the entire coast. And so that I, kind of data is, yeah. is extremely important. When I want to know if there is or isn't a red tide um, in bloom concentrations, I don't think monitoring sounds boring at all. I think <laughs> no, it's like, not at all. I think it's like Vince's group is the one where I'm like, is it here? Is it here? Yeah, is it that's, here? that's the guy we and, need to go to. And, you know, and that's, a, that's another <laughs> important component of the monitoring is yeah. to, you know, actually take take samples and look for red tide and see if we if we have it because what we'll often see is those the cell concentrations so the amount of the number of cells that we find in a certain volume of water once they because it's present all the time um, what at what we call background concentration so very very low numbers of cells in a given volume of water as we see that increase then we start to pay attention doesn't necessarily mean we get you know alarmed and say oh there's definitely a bloom but then once it reaches a certain threshold and then we uh, intensify our monitoring. But there's also another component in looking at all the other environmental conditions associated with the bloom. And especially as, you know, a, a lot of groups work together. And like uh, at USF, their um, uh, ocean optics uh, laboratory, uh, a big part of what they're working on is trying to develop uh, um, uh, models so that they can predict and forecast red tide. And they, you know, you could think of it a lot like weather. You know, we try to predict weather. There's this, you know, hurricane that's potentially bearing down on this part of the world. And so it's a good uh, analogy to turn to. And we want to be able to get better at predicting blooms. So we need that data. You know, the reason we can predict hurricanes or the um, Noah can predict hurricanes. I don't really do that myself. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> is is because we are they are collecting a great deal of data. Yeah. On what's, a constant basis. What, what's some of the technology you're using to monitor? Um, well, a lot of it is uh, is uh, old school. Um, where we go out on boats and we put instruments in the water and we collect water samples and bring them back to the lab and do analysis for all sorts of things like toxins and nutrients and the phytoplankton. Not just red tide, but the phytoplankton community as a whole. 
and um, and and other uh, other parameters like temperature and salinity and oxygen and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we also, you know, we, we try to move forward. Um, you know, we try to be more efficient and uh, effective at collecting that data. So there's new instruments we use. Uh, our ocean technology program. Um, they have gliders that they send out that um, have some of that same kind of instrumentation on it, but it's it's uh, autonomous and and uh, sort of uh, sails through the water, glides through the water, and collects that data all by itself. And eventually, we go back and pick it up. And then we're we're working on new technologies as well. Um, one of the m- more exciting ones, at least to me, anyways, because it gives me nice toys to play with, <laughs> is the use of uh, of drones or uh, nice. unmanned aerial vehicles. Yeah. And uh, what um, I'm working towards on that is actually having them carry a sensor that's very similar to the sensors that are on satellites. So satellite data is very, very important for our work. You know, I can get online, I can open up uh, a website that'll show me satellite images of of the water and some of those, there's algorithms that are used to process that data to basically show me where the algae is. By discriminating the color. Right, okay. right. It's using color. It's using basically the, the radiation reflecting off the water. Okay. Um, so some of, you know, there's radiation that comes towards the earth. Um, some of that's absorbed. It's reflected. And, and so the satellites basically pick up all those different wavelengths, that, that radiation. And, and then uh, people much smarter than myself use algorithms to turn that into images and maps. Wow. Okay. So it's basically and so I can look the, at that and see where the algae is. But, yeah. you know, if we have clouds, you don't get an image. Um, it only goes over once a day. So you, and, and you also don't have a very detailed image. The, the data is, is, a, is, is pretty coarse. So with a, with a drone, with a similar piece of equipment mounted to it, we can fly it over, admittedly, a much smaller area. We can't cover the entire globe in a day, mm-hmm. but we can fly it over a smaller area, get much, much more detailed picture of what's happening and much more information and potentially could allow us to distinguish between different species or at least different taxonomic groups and, and uh, enable us to map a bloom very well. Now, that's the kind of technology I'd like to see. Joe is not falling asleep now. No, no, no. I'm <laughs> wide awake. And I get to like, fly drones, so that's a bonus. Is it hard to fly a drone? I just um, got to ask, because I think I would crash it. You know, I actually think those those little toy ones that you can buy very inexpensively are much, much more difficult to fly than the, the more serious ones. Ah, the more serious ones have a lot more automatic features. They do. You know, auto hover and they, I won't crash. And stabilization features. I'll, or... I'll return to my home base when I'm feeling a little exactly. drowsy. Yeah. They really add better because they cannot be cheap. They no. cannot be. How big is the one that you are looking at? <laughs> um, well, I have uh, I have one that I currently have in hand that's, uh, oh, I'd say probably about a foot and a half Not big. square. Okay. Um, that one I've actually is waterproof, and I've rigged it up to be able to take a sample. Um, you put the, floats on it, didn't you? Uh, no, it floats on its own. Oh, it floats yeah, on it. It's wow. waterproof and it floats. And, um, and I've rigged it up to, with a, a, sampler, a sampling bottle on it, and so it can land in the water, take a sample, and fly back to me. That's a handy, uh, handy uh, drone to have when it, you're yes. uh, flying over water, <laughs> the one that will float. Well, the other one, unfortunately, is not going to be waterproof and is also going to fly over water. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be much larger. It's much probably, bigger. <laughs> probably closer to about you know, two and a half feet. But it won't be dipping down feet. to take samples. It will not. It will be <laughs> flying above the water. Oh, Hopefully, so it will remain so it's flying like a above prop, the water. Well, it's not like the, a military drone, and we're not going to have like red tide missiles on it or anything. Like that. No. <laughs> okay. All right. No, it's a it's a hex copter. So. Don't oh, let your okay. don't let your fantasies get out of hand. 
Well, although, uh, oddly enough, the fixed wing drones that you're referring to are, are a good way to do that as well. But yeah. For this exploratory level, uh, the, the copter type are, are a little bit more maneuverable. Uh, do you think you might be, f- you know, flying it with us, uh, with the camera in the next, within the next year? Or is oh, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is about to hit the, hit the ground running. Um, just waiting sky. on some equipment to come in and, um, finish up my drone my drone piloting training and then we'll we'll be flying it hopefully if we do have a bloom this season we'll be able to map it with this so we don't we never hope for a bloom but for science we hope maybe that it's like way out there and doesn't affect anyone and allows them to test the technology well, well we don't we certainly don't hope for a bloom certainly not anything large that'll impact our coastal communities but um mm-hmm. but what we have found over the years is pretty we have a bloom Pretty much every year, it might it might be a small patch that's offshore, never develops into anything large, and never impacts land. But um, we tend to have a a Karenia brevis bloom, and it's never really truly gone, right? It's just at lower well, levels. That well, there's we a difference between you know its presence and a bloom. Yeah. A bloom mm-hmm. means a concentration, you know, that number of cells per volume of water mm-hmm. over a certain threshold, and so. Um, <clears throat> We, you know, we, it, it's pretty much always present. If you look at a large enough volume of water, you will find it. Gotcha. And you had mentioned this cooperative you have with, uh, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Institute. Um, yeah, the state. And the state. Uh, what are you guys currently working on with them? Oh, it's pretty diverse. Um, like I said, the monitoring component is, is pretty huge and, and important to, to collect that data, both for, you know, early detection of, of uh, red tide, of Karenium brevis, or Florida red tide, as we call it. Um, and also for the collection of data to, to help prediction or help for prediction and forecasting models. Uh, but there's other research aspects going on as well. Um, uh, the ecotoxicology program here at Moat, led by Rich Pierce, is looking at uh, toxin retention in shellfish and depuration. Because shellfish, um, there's two main ways that humans get exposed to the toxin. One is through the aerosols, um, which cause uh, respiratory irritation and eye irritation and so forth. And another way is through eating contaminated shellfish. So shellfish eat small particles in the water. By filtering it, um, if that if those small particles include red tide, then they're they're consuming those cells and building up that toxin. If if something eats that shellfish, then it gets that blast of toxin. Um, so uh, you know some of the more common ones, you know the hard clam and the oyster are pretty well understood. But there are some um, uh, ones that are recreationally harvested, such as a uh, Welks and also some some new aquaculture species such as the sunray Venus clam that very little is known about. So Rich Pierce's group has done a lot of work with those. But, but the oysters and stuff that has a huge economic oh, impact yes. on and, the uh, fishing. Yeah, and fisheries. when there's and when there is a bloom, of course, the shellfish beds close, so they they don't allow commercial harvesting. They certainly discourage um, recreational harvesting, and that can have a big a big impact economically. Yeah, mm-hmm. I gotta say, when I got to moat. Eight years ago now, <laughs> I was already sort of impressed by the level of, um, I don't know, just taking action automatically when there's a bloom. There's, you know, there's a really, like, organized group that communicates, like, state, counties, health departments, aquaculture, red tide people like Vince who study phytoplankton. There's a lot that goes on. There is, and there's there's a lot of interaction, too, among all these groups. Yeah. And well, um, it, when there is a bloom, we have we actually have weekly or weekly calls um, to discuss, you know, what the, the latest status of the bloom and, you know, what additional work might be done. Well, and, and now with uh, the new app that yeah. uh, we've heard about, you have even more people submitting data 
and information to this the statewide have system, we heard, right? Wait, have we heard about this app yet? <laughs> I thought we had heard about this new app. We might have heard about it back Didn't when we talked to Dr. Dr. Fenera say something about it. Let's that? pretend we don't remember because I don't remember. <laughs> well, Tracy and I uh, worked on developing this app, and it's a, so it's a citizen science smartphone app. Yeah. Um, it's available through both the Google Play and the, and the Apple iStore or whatever that one's called. And um, so basically, so uh, the beach conditions reporting system, which um, hopefully a lot of our listeners are familiar with, um, is was developed you know long ago, and it basically uses lifeguards as sentinels to report twice a day. That's great, um, but you know just by nature the coverage is somewhat limited. So we wanted to develop that into you know something a bit more um, citizen science oriented. So essentially, citizens can do that same thing. So you get this app on your phone, and wherever you are along the water, you can report um, either the presence or the, the absence of red tide by um, reporting if there's water discoloration, if you're experiencing respiratory irritation, or if you see dead fish. And yeah. so that's if we do have a bloom this coming season, that's going to be extremely helpful because we could potentially have very dense coverage of of these sentinels as uh, citizens as sentinels as sensors essentially um, all along the the Florida Gulf Coast. I am uh, looking at the app right now. It has a map that would show if you were reporting, and it would show it for a certain amount of time, and then right like. You can, and when you try to report that the water is discolored, it shows you pictures. So it's not just like, describe to me what the water looks like. Right, it's, and it's and really by looking easy. at the pictures, you yeah. know, if someone's report, you know, if someone's reporting discolored water, and they choose a certain picture, we can then look at that picture and have a better idea of what it is. Is this actually red tide, or is it something else, another phenomena that we're familiar with? A lot of stuff people think is red tide is is it's either, not really either right. like yeah. a less harmful species, or it's like a discolored water that's just got tannins or something. And so this, you know, this becomes a really, you know, efficient way to collect additional data. Now we're not going to get temperature and salinity and some of those other things that we get when we do our boat surveys, but we can have a, you know, really good idea of, of uh, where the red tide is when, when there is one. Yeah. And where it's not, which and is also important. Yeah, I got to stress, don't, uh, don't stop, you know, using the app uh, or even just checking the beach conditions reporting system when there's no red tide. I mean, that's the whole point is that you know it's not there. Happy day. <laughs> exactly. And we definitely want to encourage users of the app to, to report whenever they happen to be at the water, whether there's evidence of a red tide or not. I had, a, I had two questions that I think that residents and visitors might want to know the most. Uh, you know, if I, if I don't know too much about red tide, where can I turn to find out information if I hear, uh-oh, there's a bloom, where can I... Where should I start? Where should she start looking, Dr. Lovecare? <laughs> yep. Well, there's a, there's a number of sources. One, you can um, go to the, uh, the FWC, the state, uh, the Florida Fish and Wildlife uh, Conservation Commission website, and they do, during a bloom, they'll do twice-weekly updates, um, which includes a lot of our data as well, our cell count data. Um, you can also uh, check out the MOAT page, especially the Beach Conditions Repo Reporting System. And there's a, there's a variety of other sources, even uh, NOAA, the um, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, website does reports as well. Yeah, they and you have... can sign up for uh, to be on an email list for that. So those will let us know if the waters and uh, like the seafood are safe. Um, so the Fish and Wildlife one basically gives a uh, a, um, a, a re an assessment of the bloom. You know, if there's any bloom activity, um, they'll show a map um, showing the concentrations of cells where where cells have been measured. 
and um, and then kind of just gives an assessment on what's expected over the next couple of days. And that part of it actually comes from uh, University of South Florida and they're the models that they've generated. And then uh, um, uh, the Beach Conditions Reporting System, the BCRS, uh, that's the twice daily reports from, I think we're up to 30-something sites uh, along the Gulf Coast now, the we're Florida Gulf Coast. We're doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah. very good. Yeah. Looking for more sites, always looking for more, I think. And so that'll <laughs> tell you if there's discolored water, if there's respir respiratory irritation, if there's dead fish, as well as a whole slew of other um, beach conditions, jellyfish and debris on the beach and waves and various things like that. Oh, wow. And that is cool. And even though it's by volunteers, so it's not about the cell counts in the water, it is still probably one of the most uh, up-to-date, regularly updated resources you can get. So that's what a lot of people like about it, I think. Yeah, you can wake up in the morning, Say, pull up that information, and has it changed? which beach am I going to? And then the NOAA one, that, that, uh, that focuses more on uh, anticipated respiratory irritation. Yeah. And, and what about the, uh, the seafood? Where um, do you go for that? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, generally, our seafood is pretty well regulated. So the shellfish beds close when the – actually, when the cells are still fairly low concentration, but when they start creeping up um, because – uh, the shellfish, of course, being filter feeders, they can, you know, even at low concentrations, they can build up a significant amount of toxin over over a period of time. Um, so those shellfish beds close when the, uh, when a certain threshold is reached, and then they don't reopen until the the meat is actually tested and shown to be toxin free or so below a certain level of toxin. If I'm at the grocery store or if I'm at a yes, restaurant, you're they, safe. They're if not you're, they're not buying red tide. Exactly. If you're buying yeah. commercially uh, harvested or sitting at fish a restaurant and shellfish, uh, you're you're fine. Yeah, whether it's a restaurant yeah. or a seafood so store. So I, sh I should not stop my waiter and interrogate them about red tide. <laughs> How, I'm just excuse me, is this red tide? <laughs> However, no. if you are recreationally harvesting shellfish, then you should definitely pay attention to, to closures, closure areas. And you can find that through the, uh, through the FDACs, the Florida Department of uh, Consumer uh, Agriculture and Consumer Services. Oh, okay. Very good. Yeah, they do have, they post notices of closures. Yes, they do. Lastly, um, are there any misconceptions or, or myths about um, red tide or other harmful algal blooms that you think we should clear up? Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, going back to, you know, dialing way, way back, uh, I think because of harmful algae, a lot of people might misunderstand that phytoplankton are, are a bad thing. Um, and, of course, as we talked about earlier, um, they're, they're not. They're extremely important, both in terms of oxygen production and, and part of the food web and so forth. Um, but also, you know, there, and I think uh, another point that I made is important to keep in mind is that these, there are a lot of different species and different taxonomic groups, and they're very different from each other, and they don't all behave the same, and they don't all respond to the same thing. So, um, for example, you know, another one that um, could be loosely called a phytoplankton. It's not technically an algae, but cyanobacteria, which we um, often uh, see blooming in freshwater areas, um, you know, that is probably much more likely to be influenced by nutrient input. Mm. Um, when we're talking about something like our Florida red tide along the coast, you know, there's, there's a lot of dynamics that go on there with, um, with currents and water flow and water movement. And nutrient input is, is a lot more difficult to, well, it's, it's more difficult to assess the impact of nutrient input, land-derived, you know, human-derived nutrient input on these blooms. Um, there's a tendency to think that they must be caused by human activity, and that's not necessarily the case. It could be enhanced by human activity and the nutrients we put in the water, but that's, that takes a lot, of, uh, a lot more research and a lot more data to be able to conclusively say that. As scientists, we have to rely on the data. So, Vince... 
Can we do anything to control or stop red tide? Um, that, that's a good question. Uh, in, in short, I would say probably. Um, now, again, if we take a step back and look at a lot of different harmful algal blooms instead of just red tide, you know, there are some things that could be done and, and have been done and are being done to control some, some red tides um, or some, some harmful algal blooms. So for our Florida red tide, we are looking into ways that we could potentially control or, or, or shorten a bloom. Um, now, you know, we're probably a very, very long way from implementation of this, um, but as scientists, you know, it's our job to find out what's possible. So a couple of avenues that we're looking at is um, one is a, it's actually really interesting and kind of sounds a bit sci-fi. There's a, a, a parasite called amoebophria. That's a dinoflagellate. That's a parasite on other dinoflagellates. So hmm. it invades a dinoflagellate host. It reproduces. It forms this this worm-like trophant that then breaks the cell open and swims away. Oh, wow. And, and disperses into thousands of new little cells that can then go and invade other cells. Now, that one's thought to actually be a controlling factor in some other dinoflagellates, not our Karenia brevis, but mm -hmm. some other dinoflagellates in other parts of the world. So we're trying to see, can does this organism affect Karenia brevis? So that's kind of the very first step. That's interesting. Yeah. And another one, we're looking at uh, compounds produced by, by macroalgae, so the things we often refer to as seaweeds, um, that might um, inhibit Karenia brevis. In which way? Well, basically, uh, compounds that would uh, that are a term we use called allelopathic. So they basically knock down their competitors. They keep them from growing. In some ways, they'll be algicidal. In other words, they'll they'll kill the cell. And um, we've done a lot of uh, both of these projects. We've done a lot of work with uh, with interns that we have over the summer and fall and spring. And um, these are you know, you're, not killing, you're not killing off interns, are you? <laughs> no, they're not. We're not using them as test subjects. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's always good. Are your interns dinoflagellates? Because otherwise they've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> no, they are not. So last question is just um, how, what's the process like from understanding something like this to actually maybe applying it in some way? Because I wouldn't want to jump ahead. There's a lot of research that has to go on with these things. Yes, or? absolutely. There'd be a great deal of research. You know, we'd want to look at the, you know, before we'd even consider this as, an, as something to actually apply in the natural environment, we'd want to under, fully understand the ecological impacts and consequences of, of such a thing. Now, it could be like, for example, with the amoebophria, this parasite, that it's already present in Karenia and maybe even is part of what controls the blooms when we see the blooms start to die off. We don't know this yet. This is kind of a new a new field. All right. So whether we can help it along in some way would be really hard to know at this point. At this point, it'd be hard to know. But, yeah. you know, it all has to start somewhere. It yeah, does. it does. And it starts with research. And every show has to end somewhere. <laughs> and this is the end of the show. So thank, so thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Loveco. Thanks for having me. And uh, Hales? Well, we'll see you in uh, two weeks for another episode of 2C Fans at Moat.